Good morning, guys. Good to be here. Uh, it's a joy, a joy to be here. Um, it's wild. I've uh, actually, uh, my, my parents lived here in Dayton for a year uh, before I was born. So it's, uh, it's neat to kind, of, to, to kind of come to a city that I've never been to for the first time and get to meet people. And so um, it's, been, it's been great this morning being welcomed warmly by you guys. Um, so it's been great to have conversations with you and looking forward to more conversations afterwards. Um, this morning, as, as uh, Caleb and Steve have shared, uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2. So, um, yeah, we'll be opening up to Psalm chapter 2. Um, and, I, and I also just want to take a moment and just say thank you. Uh, thank you for having us here. Thank you for letting us be here and letting me preach here. Um, it's a joy to do that, and um, and even our connections. We we are good friends with Mark and Becca Waite. Um, the Waites have been um, really helpful for Brittany and I over the past couple of years, being in Dubai, being here, and being able to have conversations with them, and uh, having them minister to us, share us wisdom. Uh, so they've been a, a sweet joy to our family. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for sending them out. Thank you for caring for them, for supporting them. Um, Thank you for sending your your pastors to go visit them. That is incredible that you guys give time to Steve and his wife to go spend time and to care for them on the field. And I would encourage you, if you guys can, the greatest thing uh, that a missionary can have is to have not only pastors come and visit them, but church members. Um other church members come out and visit them and to see what their world is like, see what they're doing um, and learn and and just serve them on the field. So I encourage you, please take time to do that. Consider that. Um, And so as you open up to Psalm chapter 2, one other thing that I was was prompted by, I was actually corrected by, I thought it already happened, but the coronation ceremonies of of King Charles III that's going to happen in England soon. Uh, it's actually next week. Um, it, it's, it's, we don't get to see a king being crowned. The ceremony surrounding that very often in our lifetime. It's, it's becoming more and more rare, actually, um, as kingdoms are, are going away. But I would encourage you to actually to, to, to watch it. It's going to be a little bit of history. Um, I know we don't really... <laughs> America's not really, we don't, we don't like England that much, but, um, but it will be a, a beautiful thing to see, and it'll be fascinating, it'll be luring, it'll be full of grand, extravagant fanfare and events, and so it'll be something interesting for your families to watch. But as, as, as we may witness that next week, this morning we're actually going to witness a much, much more glorious and more captivating king being crowned. So join with me in Psalm chapter 2 as I read the text. Why do the nations rage and why and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the, whole, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath 
and ter- terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our world is historically, historically been centered around kings and kingdoms, and we've been fascinated even with kings and their stories, many children's fairy tales and uh, novels have been written about kings and their kingdoms. And one of my favorites actually recently um, that my wife helped me dive into is the C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which most of us are probably familiar with, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The great Christ figure, Aslan the Lion, is on the move He's on the move to restore the land of Narmia from the reign of the wicked white witch. He's seeking to restore the reign to its rightful rulers, four English children of whom the prophecy foretold. But one of the children named Edmund famously betrays the good cause of Aslan by bowing down to this wicked white witch out of his own greedy, evil desires of his heart. And through this masterful story that C.S. Lewis gives us, we follow Edmund's despair. And as he realizes, though, that he has helped the wrong kingdom. An even greater fear when he discovers that his only hope lies in the rescue of the hands, or we might say paws, of the very one he rebelled against. Isn't this just like us? finding ourselves in the same predicament as Edmund, pursuing our own desires, seeking our own satisfaction, elevating ourselves, striving to find our own peace and our own security in all the wrong places, aligning ourselves with the wrong king. So this is what Psalm 2 portrays for us. And it's not only the journey of every person, but this psalm zooms out now, and it gives us a cosmic perspective, a perspective of the cosmos, of the, the universe, a picture not just of individuals, but the whole of creation, every nation, every king throughout history. And as it does, it delivers us a message that is critical for us to hear. And this is what it's going to tell us today. Peace and security can only be found in the refuge offered by Jesus. Let me say that one more time for you. Peace and security can only be found in the refuge offered by Jesus. 
And before we dive into this text, it might be helpful to even consider the background now of the psalm. And uh, as most people believe, as you know, see, it is a, a royal psalm. It is a psalm of a coronation of Israel's kings. And so the immediate reference, yes, is here to King David. But as salvation history unfolds, it becomes clear. It becomes clear that no king, no earthly king, could live up to the profile and the promises here given to this king in Psalm 2. And so the inspired New Testament writers have helped us understand even how this psalm points forward and finds its fulfillment in the king Jesus Christ. And that God's promises here to these kings in Psalm chapter 2 are not from any no merely earthly human king, but to David's greater son. And it would be that king who would conquer God's enemies, giving us safety and refuge to God's people and bringing all the world under God's loving reign. That is what the psalm points to us today. Now that the stage is set, let's see where we're heading. And let's get into this text. And let's address this first scene and see what God has to save to us. So look with me at point at, uh, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see point number 1. Point number 1, our sinful rebelling is totally pointless. It is totally pointless. Even the psalmist here opens up this first passage here with the question, it's a question, a question that is of confusion. He's, he's confused, he's bewildered. He asks, why? Why are you doing this in vain? He's dumbfounded. And it, it reminds me of, if you've ever seen, have you ever seen a, a video of, uh, it's, I call them fail videos. It's when you know that someone is getting ready to do something very stupid. And, uh, and you know it's going to end in failure. It's going to end in hurt. And so as you're watching this, you're just thinking, come on, guys, really? Really, you're going to do this right now? You think it's going to go well for you? And they're, they're, they're just confident, oh, yeah, this is, this is going to go well for me. This is going to go well for me. But they're, they're blind. You see, they're blind in the moment and thinking in their own prideful ways that this reality is going to work out for them. What's intriguing here. Even as you look at verse, uh, t- uh, verse 1, is this, even this concept of plotting. They're planning, conspiring. It doesn't just happen in a moment, though. You might even say that they've been meditating on it. They're godly, the godly people meditate on God's word versus what we see here is the wicked meditate on evil plans. That even... That's a mirroring effect of what we see from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, it says uh, that the, the, the righteous man meditates day and night on the Lord's law. And now here we see the nations do what? They're plotting, they're meditating against the Lord on evil ways. It's a slow stewing about in our hearts that we create as we're meditating, thinking about these wicked ways contrary to the Lord. 
and it develops over time, and it creates a lot of unsettling noise in our lives. In my time as a missionary, it's been wonderful, and it's been a joy to visit different churches and congregations. And one thing that is very sweet that I've noticed, and I noticed here this morning, is this warm hum of conversation that is going on amongst one another at the beginning of the gathering. This warm hum of conversations of people caring for one another, asking about how you're doing, carrying burdens, praying. And then further yet, as we enter into the gathering, there's a stillness before the Lord in prayer. There's rejoicing in song. There's attentive listening. There's humble responding. See, this, this is the joy, joyful noise of the church warmly gathered, finding delight in the things of the Lord. Contrary to what we see here, what is happening, what is, what is unfolding is the sound of voices we hear in verses 1 through 3 that is the opposite. And what that is, is it's the disposition, the nature of man's heart apart from Christ. It is actually against Christ. There is no neutral ground here. And there's this low rumble we hear. It's, it's this low rumble of people complaining, developing, meditating in their hearts, conspiring to remove the authority that reigns over them. So verses 2 to 3 even explains further now why. Why is this happening? Why is this transpi- transpiring? The kings and the rulers have chosen to conspire and turn against his Lord and his anointed. They have chosen to reject his rule and his ruler. And we can even see this today in our current world, can't we? Ever since the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, man's heart has been set against the kingdom of God. This rebellion takes on many forms we see in this world, unjust wars, leaders oppressing their people, and even employers oppressing Christians and their convictions. As a former missionary, particularly that's heavy on my heart, is in the Middle East the persecution that governments and tribes and religions take on against the Lord and his anointed. Of course, we see this even happening now in our culture, every day around us. People are rejecting God to pursue their own pleasures. This is what the psalmist wants to draw our attention to here at the beginning of the psalm, the why. Whether it's here in the United States, whether it's in China, Yemen, Ecuador, Turkey, it's a stewing of man's heart set against the Lord. And as his heart starts to turn up, and as it boils over, we see in verse 3, them shout, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what they really want. They want to be free from the authority of the Lord. They want nothing less to be than individual selves apart from the Lord and his anointed. They want to be under, from underneath, brought from underneath his authority. Their heart is against God. And actually what this, this picture here paints for us is they feel that God's authority is like a harsh imprisonment upon them, binding them, restricting them instead of life-giving. They think that God wants to rob them of their independence 
He wants to stifle them. And, and so now they want to overthrow his authority and establish their own kingdom. And they want to do what is right in their own eyes. But, but we shouldn't be surprised here. We shouldn't be surprised by this. But if we are, then maybe we have forgotten our former life before Christ. The way we also rejected God's authority, like these kings and rulers here and these nations have. As Paul helps us understand in Romans chapter 3, verses 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I am often also too quick to forget my own indwelling temptations to kick against the authority of the Lord. And I see my, my need to reply, rely upon his empowering grace to renew my mind. I need to be reminded of this every day. My wife can tell you this. Sadly, my wife can tell you this. Our time in Dubai was a, a great time, but it was also a hard time. We went through a lot in that season. And I was constantly anxious, she can tell you. Um, anxious, not, uh, not in the slightest and in any good sense. And she would, she would come up to me and she would lovingly seek to help shine light onto the sin of my life. My, my desire for control or, and for, for being anxious from things in life there. But as soon as she shined that line on there, on that my sin, I would say in my heart, no. Who are you to point this out in my life? I would deny the sin that she just helped me graciously see. And I would, just, I would end up just walking away from the conversation like, I'm done here. And I would end up going outside and going on a walk. Uh, but exactly what is happening there, as Jeff Perswell once said, that is my heart crying out, my kingdom come, my will be done. I don't want that. I don't want the Lord's authority in my heart, in my life, tell me what is sin and what is not. But the Lord's commands are not harsh and restrictive as what these people see here. Listen to the words of Christ and be reminded of what Christ says. Christ says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I saw that book back there in the back, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Oh, man, if I can encourage you to pick up a copy, if you haven't, please pick up a copy and take it home with you. It is such a sweet balm to our souls, giving us a picture of Christ's heart towards his people. But we quickly forget about this. So we got to remind you, isn't this what we're seeing here, the story of us all, our sinful rebellion filling our hearts. It has blinded us from the beginning of our birth to seeing God's beauty, seeing God's restful security that he's brought in his son. 
So this now leads us to our second point, the second reason why security is found only in Christ. And that is God's plan to exalt Christ is final. Look with me at verses now four through six. What we arrive here in verses four through six is, is a scene of God speaking. Actually, before we even see that, God sitting, God being. It's a tiny different scene contrasted from the first one here. It is marked by silence and serenity. It's the perspective of the Lord from heaven on what is transpiring in the rebellion of man. Some theologians call this the silent sovereignty of God. As the rebellion of man is raging and calamity is going on and the world is in chaos around us, God is silently at work, even though we may not see it. And in verses 4 through 6, the curtain is pulled back and we get to see God at work. We get to see what God is doing in the face of this. He's not surprised. He's not wringing his hands thinking, what am I going to do? Pacing around, looking down upon the nations and these kings, wondering, what am I going to do? No. The scene gives us a picture of him actually sitting and chuckling. Holding the nations in derision, it says. He is not anxious, my friends. He's not anxious. That is rest for you. He is not anxious over the state of our current society, our current culture. As it seems to be falling apart. He's not anxious over the state of marriage and families and LGBTQ in this world. World affairs what's transpiring in Eastern Europe, Russia, China, the alliances that are happening there across the world. He's not worried. He's not anxious. No, he's actually sitting, calm. He's sitting and he's chuckling. And wouldn't you agree with me that it's probably far too easy for us now in today's world to, to grow in our anxiety, to not trust the Lord in these times? With globalized media, world news as it is occurring right at our fingertips, we can pull out our phones and we can look and see what is going on right now across the whole world. We have news immediately. It's filling our lives daily with information that we were not meant to carry burdens that we were not meant to carry. The weight of the world that is plastered all over screens around us, we were not meant to carry all of this weight. So, oh, Christian, I ask, I, I plead with you, fill our hearts, fill your heart with these truths right here in this psalm. Fill your hearts with God's word. Redirect your focus. Because the Lord our God is enthroned and his authority cannot be challenged. One person here comments on this scene of God sitting and laughing. Laura Turner says, God's laughter, it turns out, is not gentle, good-natured chuckle of a friend. It is the laugh of someone who knows the whole story, someone who knows that in the end, Everyone will be held to account, and justice will prevail. God's laugh is simultaneously comforting in its assurance of equanimity 
and also terrifying. Christian, this is the very reason we can be secure while the world around us is in chaos, angry, confused, wants to rid itself of the authority that we find good. And I am certain I'm certain that we can easily fall into the anxiousness that is apart from God. But what is being communicated here is that God is in control. We can trust that today. God is in control of the rebellious nations. And he is storing up. He is storing up a wrath for them. He knows their end. He knows it's futile. He knows it's empty. Because God is the one who cannot be moved. He cannot be moved from his heavenly throne. And his plan is to exalt his son, Jesus. And it is final. We know that. We know the end of the story. And how is this possible? How is his plan final to exalt his son, Jesus? Well, look with me at verse 6. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Lord, The Lord speaks. God speaks here. Out of his silence and his serenity, he speaks. He says, as for me, I. That's what he's saying. I have done this. This scene puts on display God's wrath towards rebellious nations. When God speaks, God acts. We can trust that. When God speaks, God acts. It's like going, bam, look. Here's my king. I have set him on my holy hill right here. We can trust that. As John Calvin wonderfully says about this scene, the sum of, excuse me, the sum is this. Wicked men may now conduct themselves as wickedly as they please, but they shall at length feel what it is to make war against heaven. God signifies that he is so far exalted above the men of this world that the whole mass of them could not possibly obscure his glory in the least degree. As often then as the power of man appears formidable to us, let us remember how much it is transcended by the power of God. Whatever plots, therefore, men may form against it. Let this one consideration be sufficient to satisfy us today, that they cannot render ineffectual the anointing of God. The suffering, the pain, the grief that we share, that we endure, the dismay, the confusion of what is going on, the destruction that sin brings to this world, it is not going unnoticed, my friends. It is not going unnoticed by God. It becomes plain, though, that the only laughing matter here is arrogance itself, not, not the suffering it will cost before it ends, because we know it will cost much. It is a very costly, costly arrogance that is going on in this world. The suffering that the divine king 
would come and take on in this world to fulfill. He would take this on. But he would not come as any earthly king. Christ would not come looking like our kings, adorned with rich, lavish life, raised in a royal family with a palace sitting high on his horse. Like the king of England, king of England that will be crowned next week. No. Jesus did not come in glory, but actually in humility. He set aside his heavenly throne to be born as a baby among livestock, a builder by family, by trade, and would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is the one who temporarily set all of this aside for our sake. His heavenly crown he set aside temporarily, and he took up a crown of thorns, a heavenly throne for a wooden cross. This is how costly it is. It was only, it was on this holy hill that the divine king would be crucified upon this cross, bearing the fullness, the fullness of God's wrath against the rebellion of man for the forgiveness of our sins, dying and rising from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. Oh, what beauty lies here. What beauty lies here on this holy hill, that he secured the kingdom of God. He secured the kingdom so that we rebellious people may come in. He secured our salvation. Church, I hope you can see with me that our king is more glorious than any other king. He is more glorious than any other government, political nation that is in this world. And even what is happening, what is transpiring here, the church gathered together in Acts 4, when they're praying for boldness, when they're praying in the face of persecution, they help us understand the paradox here. And it brings them rest. It brings them security. It brings them peace. For when they said, truly in this city, it was that the city was gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everybody was against Jesus. To do whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. That's what the church in Acts 4 helps us see. The nations thought they had defeated the Lord and his anointed, but rather in their ignorance, in their arrogance, they were only doing exactly what the Lord has planned, fulfilling the glory that Jesus would receive. The power of God, the power of God is not displayed in the ways of man, but in what man thinks as weak and foolish this is what Paul rejoiced in, the foolishness of the cross, because God has destroyed the wisdom and the power and the arrogance of man. God has done it. The Lord is not worried by the raging sinful rebellion of man. No, his promise is to exalt his son. 
and he has secured it. But just how far reaching does this promise go? This next scene will show us, and which leads us to our third point today. Christ's rule over humanity will be total. Our third point today is Christ's rule over humanity will be total. Look with me, verses 7 through 9. We hear the king speaking here. He's saying, I will tell of this decree. I'll tell of what is about to happen. I will tell this proclamation, what will take place. It brings us to the climax of the crowning ceremony, the decree that goes forth echoing the words of David. In 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he shall be my son. This is the day of which the king would then take up his inheritance and his title. This is the pinnacle point of the crowning ceremony. But as we've already seen, this declaration is given to no mere human king. As the New Testament help us, helps us see, the decree from God is for the one who in his righteousness has conquered death. He has been resurrected. Jesus' resurrection is the crowning point of his coronation. So let us not quickly pass by this scene. And as these words here in verse 7 says, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Remember the words of God over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And at his transfiguration on that holy mountain, this is my son, my chosen one. Now listen to him. Church, Jesus has finished it all. He has done it. He is the one who through his death, resurrection, and ascension to so God's right hand ushers in this kingdom and secures this kingdom for us, making it available to all, to all who would believe. Note the bold invitation God offers to this king here in verse 8 in the next line. So now ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, my friends, has asked for his inheritance. He has done it. He's finished it on the cross, and he has done it in his resurrection. He has interceded on the behalf of his people. And in his final words on this earth before his ascension to the right hand of God, what's even more fascinating is what he does. What he does here with his authority that he has been given. He opens his mouth wide and proclaims to the disciples, All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Now what? Go. Go. Jesus has passed on this authority. He's delegated this authority to his church to declare and put on display his inheritance. We have an amazing job. We have an amazing role. We are his ambassadors. We have been given such wonderful roles to play in his kingdom. And the peace and the security that the world is longing for 
will only be found in Christ. So this is why even Christians, ourselves, we must ask, we must ask ourselves in the midst of the turmoil of the world and the chaos and the dismay and the hurt and the pain, have we become distracted? Where am I placing my hope, my efforts? In the direction of our culture, in this next election, in this king, in this president? Or are we looking to the supernatural power of the gospel that transforms hearts and changes lives? That is what goes forth. That is what brings peace and security. It is Christ who has changed our lives, as we know. And now as his ambassadors, that is the hope that we can also offer to others. The church does this, this delegated authority. The, the church exercises this by going, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching all that he has commanded. This is the mission of the church. Patrick Schreiner so wonderfully helps us understand this importance in this quote. We, too, witness to the world about the king and his kingdom where justice, peace, and harmony reside. Jesus didn't seek to change the structures around him. He preached another political way. And then this alternative politic is manifested where? In the community of believers we call the church. That is one reason it is so important to be part of the local church and around other Christians that remind you of your true loyalty and the kingdom to come. Whenever a preacher preaches, he makes a political speech reminding you that Jesus is king in the present. Whenever you receive communion, you will pledge your allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. And whenever you share the gospel of Christ with a neighbor, a friend, or a family member, you are helping advance Christ's campaign among the nations. For a Christian, the political life must begin inside the church. Though this, sound, this might sound like standard Christian advice, it is to the utmost importance. The local church is the political rallying point for all God's people. We all occupy different stations, but we are all politicians. This is the beauty of what we get to have, what we get to behold as ambassadors for Christ. This quote reminds us of this new kingdom for the Christian. Its manifestation is in the church. It's right here. Guys, look around you. And as we will do here at the end of service, it's with one another that we pledge our allegiance to Christ again every Sunday. His kingdom is right here on display. Its manifestation is in the church. And guess what? God has promised to build his church. He, and he has promised to protect it. Look at verse 9 with me. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This word right here, it, it break, it can, it can 
sound kind of harsh at first. What does he mean by break? If you were just to do a quick cross-reference, a study of this word, you will find it in other places, actually, that it would present to us even a broader understanding of just break. It could be translated to rule, or even literally meaning to shepherd, reminding us of Jesus Christ, that he's not just a king. He is our shepherd king. He shepherds his flock, his church. Why? Which is, makes it so fitting for this passage. He is shepherding his inheritance. He is protecting it. Gentle and compassionate to shepherd his people. But watch out. Kings and rulers, you mess with my people, you mess with my flock. You mess with Christ, you mess with me, he says. And the shepherd staff, oh, it'll, it'll quickly turn into a rod and iron. It'll quickly turn into my ruling shepherd. It'll quickly turn, and it will dash you to pieces, like a chintzy piece of china. Oh, there is joy to be found in that, that we have a king that is protecting his inheritance. So we can trust in that when he comes back, when he returns, justice will be served. So Christ has secured his inheritance. His church is that inheritance, and he will protect it. And now he has given his church the authority to go and take that invitation to the king, that invitation of the kingdom to the world. And we'll see this in this next scene, our final scene, and point number four. Christ's invitation for refuge is glorious. Point number four, Christ's invitation for refuge is glorious. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This king now is announcing closing to his coronation ceremony. And what he's actually doing here is extending an offer. Not only did this king just endure the rebellion of man, but now he is offering an invitation to them. To an invitation of peace and security and refuge that is only found in him. What kind and generous words that we have what kind and generous offer to those who only deserve punishment? The king here is actually circling back, back around, you see, back to where we just started in the opening of Psalm 2. He's circling back around and meeting the rebellious nations. Peoples of the earth, you have been warned. So don't be foolish. Wise up. Wise up, he's saying. See that your raging is pointless. See that your rebellion, your sin is pointless. There is no peace to be found here. Can't you see it? The burden of this rebellion is heavy, and it's just going to drag you into the ground, and it's only storing up wrath for you on the day of Christ and his return. Derek Kidner here simply puts about this wisdom in this text. 
he says in this quote, Since the ways of the Lord are right, the Bible never drives a wedge between authority and truth, or between wisdom and obedience. You see, wisdom flows from obedience. We don't get wise to obey. No, out of our obedience, we become wise. So to wise up, you first have to humble yourself. This is the picture that we have here in this scene. Humble yourself to the rule of the Lord. Make no mistake, though, this is not a call to submission, to become some emotionless stoic. It's common on social media, even that some I follow, some of the social media influencers say, just get it done. Just wake up in the morning and get it done. Just do it. Don't let feelings leave it to chance. No, that's not the picture here. And verse 11 makes it clear that when one comes to the foot of the cross of Christ, it will radically change them. When the Spirit opens up our eyes to see the beauties of Christ as the true King, our hearts are transformed. From selfish rebellion to glad and peaceful submission, from a sinful, murmuring, raging heart to a heart of a righteous emotion filled with awe and trembling. In this quote by Michael Reeves, in his book, Rejoice and Trembling, another book I would highly recommend to you after you read Gentle and Lowly, he describes our transformation this way in this quote. It is a blessed confusion made of sweet tears in which God's grace and kindness shown to you at the cross makes you weep at your wickedness. And yet you simultaneously repent and rejoice. His mercy accentuates your wickedness, and your wickedness, your very wickedness, accentuates his grace, leading you to a deeper and more fearfully happy adoration of the Savior. Oh, what transformation takes place as we stand and gaze upon the, Christ, the cross of Christ. And this call to worship that we see here continues on in verse 12. We see this kind of strange phrase, kiss the sun. I mean, when I first read that, I was like, what do you mean, kiss the sun? Like, like do I literally kiss the sun? How do I do this? But it's, in other words, it's actually a command a ple- to pledge your devotion to him. To pay homage. Imagine a public expression of kissing the hands or the feet of a king. We see in so many movies or, or uh, kids' fairy tales of running to the feet of the hands and kissing them, embracing them. That is what's being called for here. Church, this is an invitation. And this is this, our invitation. And as we embrace the king, it becomes our invitation to take forward as well. What we're seeing here in verses 10 through 12 is the very gospel message that we have graciously received while we were in our sinful rebellion. And it's the same message that we proclaim. If we don't hear, if, I'm sorry, if people don't hear and receive this gospel, this warning, this invitation, Verse 12, it's clear what will happen to them. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
people will perish. They are storing up wrath for themselves. This is why the Apostle Paul made it his ambition to proclaim the gospel where Christ had not been named. To see the nations turn from their rebellion and turn to worship the Lord. And this is life-altering power. And this is what propels us. This is what propels us forward, that Christ has given us this invitation to make, to, to take to the nations. We can now make sacrificial choices for the gospel proclamation. It can be made because Christ has secured it. And Christ's intercession for his church will always prevail. It will always prevail. This king goes before us. So that's why the weights can pick up their lives and move from China back to Louisville, back to Dayton, back to Turkey. You guys know what moving feels like? It's grief. It's hard to tear relationships, to move from one place to the other. It's a sacrifice. But the weights know that this is a sacrifice worthy to make because they want to see this king be known. They want to take this invitation forward to the places where it has not been named We can go into hostile territory. We can go to our hostile neighbors. And we can proclaim this invitation to them. Because the king has gone before us. It is his intercession that makes it possible. It is his intercession that has secured his message. And it made it effectual to change the hearts of sinful men. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of what we behold. And we can hold out to a lost and chaotic dying world. Christ is the only hope for this world. And as you recall from the beginning of this sermon, I talked about Edmund's story. Well, Edmund's story in the wine, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe helps us remember it is never too late. No one is outside of God's reach. Edmund's rebellion required death, but it was Aslan the king who quietly went forward to take his place so that the rebellion of Edmund could come into his kingdom. So let me leave you with a few questions. Have you kissed the sun? Have you kissed the sun? Have you run to him for refuge and publicly embraced him? Have you confessed him? Have you sought to find refuge in him? Consider, have you found yourself against the Lord? Do you feel that his ways are harsh? Do you find that your thoughts in your life actually are not that of his beloved son and his kingdom and his church? Take a moment and examine yourself. And if you find yourself outside of his refuge, this invitation is for you. Just as much as it was for me, it's for you. Jesus says, come. Come and receive the forgiveness of all your sins. Come take refuge in my gentle and lonely nature. Come know the, rest, the rich blessing of my kingdom that is at display in my church, in my community. 
It is a refuge for all who will embrace my loving and gentle rule. And for the Christian, the psalm offers abundant hope. So much hope. When you find yourself persecuted by the world, run to Christ. He will comfort you. He will embrace you. He has promised to do so. And he does it with his gentle shepherd staff. And at the same time, we can trust he rules with righteousness and justice over the nations. He is the one who says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. He will protect his church. And if you find yourself anxious, troubled, or distracted, turn your eyes, redirect your gaze upon his throne, upon Jesus. Behold him. See him. See that all authority has been given to him. And see that history is moving toward that day when that, day, when that authority will be exercised. And he will come to rule and to judge the nations. And in the meantime, we are safe in his hands, church. We are safe in his hands, even if the world opposes God and opposes us. We are safe. We know that our mighty Savior is working all things, all things in, for out for our good. And he's working all things in accord with his wise and powerful plans. And that's why this peace and security are only found in the refuge that are, is offered by his son, Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for installing your son on his throne. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering on our behalf so that we may know your sweet refuge. Oh, thank you, Lord. We pray. Amen.